Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Hillary, CTO of IBM Cloud, and they discuss why removing ego and emotions when asking leaders for their opinion is extremely important. Hillary's career path from being an individual contributor to CTO at IBM, and the benefits of intimately knowing your strengths and weaknesses. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Now, one of the things I really wanted to talk with you about is this concept of sovereign clouds, because I had never heard about it until preparing for this interview. And so I was hoping you could explain to me what those are. Yeah, absolutely. Sovereign Cloud is a term that's kind of come into more popularity, especially in the last year, I would say. You know, when there's shifts in the geopolitical landscape, everyone starts to look at, you know, where is my data? Who has access to my data? How do we need to protect things? How do we need to protect critical industries? And from the perspective of that intersection of that conversation, which is in part a policy conversation, but also, you know, regulatory conversation and a conversation about the critical things that support all of us in our daily lives, right? I mean, it's banking and telecommunications and healthcare infrastructure and things like that. There comes about this conversation then about, you know, do you know where all your IT is? You know, do you know where all your data is? And do you know who has access to it? And so it, in, in many ways, you know, we view this really as a concentric set of conversations and thoughts. It starts with data privacy, knowing that things are protected and knowing who has access to them. It expands out into where things are. So sort of data residency and then locality of where all the things are that are operating on that data. And then ultimately, what's usually formally termed sovereign cloud is to say, am I sure that my data can remain in country, operated on by people that are in the country, only accessed by those folks, um, and that the resiliency and other things like that are just really well understood. So it can be a very robust and secure infrastructure for critical kind of things. Okay. Yeah, because I looked up the definition of the word sovereign, and it was like great strength. And so I was wondering, like what a weak cloud is, but it sounds like a weak cloud would be something that didn't take into account all of those things. Yeah, it, and it, it often has to do with sort of like national sovereignty, I think is sort of where the term comes from. A lot of different kind of countries and geographies and such at the moment have just really been trying to understand how do they feel about data moving across borders, right? Or how do they feel about, you know, companies with different home countries having access to data or control over their IT operations? And so a lot of it kind of comes from the sovereignty notion of, of, of countries having sovereignty and sort of having, you know, control and regulatory control over what's done. And I think that, you know, for us, as we talk to customers about it, it, it starts with that data privacy and data governance conversation because for a lot of organizations, there's a lot of modernization, right? Sort of this modernization discussion around, do I have access to everything that would be useful for my enterprise to know about? Do I have access to historical data in an in, in easy and an agile and a, in a cloud type way? Can I perform analytics easily? Can I look for fraud, right? All those questions, do you know where your data is and who's using it for what purposes? Begin to be the start of a conversation toward, you know, addressing what your country 
might want to do about keeping data in country or keeping operations on that data in country and just really ensuring ultimately that everything is compliant and secure and protected. Those are those are really the key the key topics. Yeah, I think the big one in the news recently was TikTok wanting to operate in the US, they had to keep their data in the US and I didn't dive a mile deep into it. I just sort of saw the headlines flying back and forth. But that's what I'm thinking about currently when when you're talking about data inside of different countries. Yeah, well, and if you take a step back and think about it, you know, we have lawmakers that set policies, you know, for our countries and, you know, they're elected officials, they're servicing on, they're, they're serving on behalf of the people in the best interest of those people and the best interest of the, the country. We have regulators that also, you know, take decisions and make rules and oversee particular industries like financial services, right? I mean, we're, we're each consumers. You and I have bank accounts and credit cards and every listener, you know, to your podcast does as well. And, you know, we look to, in many cases, those organizations to, to protect and ensure that the financial system, you know, is, is running well and working well. No one wants, you know, a big crash or their money to be at risk or other things like that. And so, you know, when, when you have a bank account and it says it's, you know, FDIC um, backed and you know that the, the regulators are, you know, overseeing that bank and its operations and that extends to considerations about their IT and their computing and the ways that they're protecting data and ensuring that, you know, things aren't going to be breached or held subject to ransomware or, or all those other kind of things. And so, we as consumers look to lawmakers and regulators in many situations to ensure that that kind of critical infrastructure is up and working, that, you know, power comes into the house and, and, the, and cable and the internet works and, you know, banking works. And we don't often think about that whole overlay system that runs, but those authorities in, in different countries are taking different decisions and different policies around, you know, data protection and ensuring that, you know, their country's critical infrastructure can be safe and secure. So you're a huge multinational company. And you have data centers in multiple countries, I'm assuming, because I know you you do the CTO of IBM Cloud, right? So yeah. you're cloud computing. What is the name of the role that looks at policy in different countries and translates it down into business to make sure like developers have the correct access to what they need so there's not like cross-pollination? Yeah, I, I love that question because it's something that we've really been spending a lot of time on as a cloud provider that has a lot of clients in the financial services industry. Within our cloud as a provider that, to your point, we are multinational, we're global, we have data centers around the world in the US and Canada and in Brazil and in the UK and Europe, in Australia, in Japan, et cetera. I could keep going, right? But we have all these different places and all these different considerations on, you know, what the local regulations are and then the regulations within specific industries. We've put together a program that we refer to as industry clouds, where we have kind of advisors to the client process that partner with them on their journey to cloud, we would say, right, that help them take into consideration the regulations and the security and the compliance up front. And then we have specific tools and technologies like what we call our security and compliance center that have, for example, a a profile that can be used by developers to deploy and monitor their infrastructure on the cloud. So for Australia, the, the regulatory body is called APRA. So there's an APRA profile that you can use then to ensure that 
as a developer, you don't have to go read the regulations. Ultimately, that's the goal, right? We want to abstract out all that knowledge and map that into things that automatically deploy, automatically are monitored according to those considerations that, that there's an obligation to keep up with. So we call the overall structure that we do to help, for example, banks meet those regulations, Cloud for Financial Services. And we have now over 100 banks that participate with us globally in defining that program, right? Because there's kind of a three-legged stool. You need to know what's going on with regulators, you need to know what's going on within banking, and then you need to know how to build a cloud. <laughs> um, and you bring those three parties together. And so we have folks that, that join along with our clients, you know, that know their specific industry. And then we have technologies and tools that help translate that then into things that developers can use to make sure their code is safe, make sure their deployment environments on the cloud are compliant to these requirements and things like that. So it's sort of baked into the culture of the teams. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we have, you know, to your question very specifically on like, what are the people called? One of the roles that, that we have, you know, within our cloud organization to help clients with this is called our chief risk officer for financial services. Because if you, if you take this whole topic about um, regulations and security and, you know, one of my favorite statistics was a, a CIO survey that was done by a consultancy. They said between February and April of 2020, right really when the pandemic started, the ransomware attacks on financial services went up by a factor of nine. I mean, that's huge, right? Really an order of magnitude in weeks, honestly. And so when you talk about cloud, there's a need to, you know, manage risk, right? Ensure that things are going to be secure, ensure that you're going to meet the regulatory obligations and ensure that your, your skills and your people are going to know how to do it well. So we refer to our chief risk officer, you know, as someone who can be that trusted partner to help folks move to cloud in light of all of these considerations. Okay, so there's maybe a chief risk officer at the top and then they appoint other risk officers like down the chain. That's like a department. It's really interesting. So so within many institutions that are looking to move to cloud, one of the best practices we've seen is to not have one single person be responsible and be the person who has to move everything to cloud, but to kind of create a joint responsibility model, right? There's a CTO that, you know, might be definitely responsible for getting things to the cloud, but to have them sit in a little bit more of a, a board construct with a chief risk officer that says, hey, you know, this or that is changing in regulations. And then with chief information security officer, a CISO, and to have the move to cloud be a joint responsibility of the CTO, the CRO, and the CISO and have those personas and, and what those people do every day, right? I mean, the CISO is defending against the bad guys, <laughs> helping, you know, you know, look at the latest technologies to, you know, defeat various types of cyber attacks and ransomware. The CRO kind of steps back and says, well, if we move this piece, like I need to make sure that the resiliency is, you know, properly solutioned or, hey, regulators are changing some of the questions that they have. And the CTO is just wanting to get the technology done, right? Get the workloads deployed and up and working and service the developers. But when you bring those three personas together, um, you can really help everyone go faster because there's you know better understanding and things can be jointly you know jointly designed for a successful deployment. And so, what are you spending your days doing? Like, who are you talking to? Is it mostly customers or internal team things? Yeah, I spend, I would say probably about half my time on customers. 
meeting with customers, digging in offline into what the things are that they're trying to accomplish. And then I have a team internally that is responsible for the architecture of our cloud itself, right? So how things you know function within the cloud. I have this chief risk officer um, that I mentioned who helps us make sure that we have headlights onto what you know different industries are looking for out of out of cloud, and we interlock that then with the design and architecture of the cloud. And I have a team that works on solutioning. So they work on solution patterns. So folks that are looking to, you know, move particular types of business processes to the cloud, they help them understand how to do those business processes in a more modern way. So I spend probably about half my time, you know, really working on our cloud itself and half my time working with our clients. And that gives me a synergy of saying, you know, the real life problems that are going on out there with clients, how do we then bring that back and quickly respond to that and update our offerings and all that kind of stuff. And then is there a CEO of IBM Cloud? Is it sort of its own organization within? So our structure is that we have a senior vice president of IBM Cloud who reports to the IBM corporate CEO. Okay. So our senior vice president has, you know, responsibility for the full P&L of the business and everything. So it's it's kind of a CEO type role if we were, you know, a standalone company. And then do you have P&L responsibility? I do within the financial services sector. And then this began actually a couple of years ago in my role purely as our CTO for cloud. I was spending so much time in banking and working so closely with our product management organization that I took on sort of a joint responsibility as our general manager um, of cloud for financial services and industries. So I have a team that works on telco, I have a team that, as we're talking about, works on financial services, other folks working on healthcare and other industries. So within those industry-specific programs, I have some business responsibility as well. That's amazing. Yeah, a lot of people often will ask me that are farther along in their career, they'll say, hey, I want to get experience and understand more things about the P&L because I talk about it a lot on the show because I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, I didn't go to a college to learn. I just opened a business. And when you spend your money, (laughs) you figure it out real quick, right? Yeah. So how did you get that opportunity to go from not managing a P&L ever to like the first time you've gotten to manage one? Yeah. So it's been interesting for me. I, I think that a lot of, you know, stepping into a general manager role within our industry clouds program as I mentioned, came as a natural step because I'd really helped define what the technology, you know, would be. And I was working with so many clients that taking on some additional responsibility to then, you know, track and monitor the health of how that business was going and and get more involved, you know, in the go-to-market and and other aspects of it came as a pretty natural step for me. Um, But I'll tell you, honestly, that journey started back in, in 2017, I was appointed an IBM fellow, which is, a a technical ranking within the company. And I think like many companies, IBM talks about a technical career path and sort of what the steps on it are. And then it talks about more of a business or management career path, you know, which has the different rungs of, of, of layers of management. And I was, you know, at the time, I would say much more invested in my, in my technical career than I was in necessarily being a business leader. And I went in 2017, the the very first week that I was appointed as an IBM fellow, I went to someone whose advice I really respected. And I said, you know, hey, Dave, you've seen many fellows, you've seen, you know, folks that have been 
successful and, and getting their ideas adopted by the business and folks that haven't been successful, that, that are technical geniuses that just haven't managed to convince the company and its leadership that they should invest in what they're proposing. So what's the difference? And he said, the difference is the amount of time that you personally invest in understanding what's in the head of the business leaders, right? And so that started me on a path of, you know, consuming even as just a technical leader, so to say, consuming as much of the financial information about the business, the processes, the operations, how are we actually selling things? What, what did customers think of us? NPS scores, all that kind of stuff, right? And I was really doing that so as to be more effective in helping to get investment for the technical ideas um, that I had, that my team had, et cetera. And it just gave me exposure to how a lot of what we do from a business perspective has a lot of engineering to it, right? We tend to separate the worlds, but there's a lot of, you know, process engineering, right? If if I do this and I go to market that way, it's going to cause this effect. And if I compensate people in this way, cause different parts of the business to function in different ways, it's not that different fundamentally from what many of us are trained to do in engineering, so once I was kind of able to get that perspective, it helped me be more effective as a technologist, but then also made me much more comfortable with getting into those, you know, those processes and mechanics in terms of the business. Oh, I completely understand. The first three businesses I built, I was the technical co-founder. I was just responsible for building the technology and the teams and all of that. And then on this most recent business that's been going on for about five years, I'm just the solo founder. And so when I had to go through the process of learning sales and learning how to build sales infrastructure and sales teams and generate steady flows of meetings and things like that, as I started to get into it, I'm like, this is engineering just with humans (laughs) and processes. Yeah, no, you got it. I mean, I think that there's a lot of language and I think a lot of people get kind of intimidated by the language. Um, but I think, you know, there there are some really concrete techniques, right? You know, find a CFO friend. I always, you know, warn the, the current CFO that, that I work with and I'm, you know, gonna, gonna talk about how helpful the openness and transparency that we've had. I mean, he comes to me with technical questions. I go to him with finance questions, you know, and, and just, you know, it's, it's a very much agreement that there are no dumb questions. We're just gonna, you know, ask each other what we don't know find a buddy in sales, you know, that you can have a, you know, totally transparent conversation. I feel like I should know how, you know, something happens in step 32 of, you know, a contract, but I don't, can you please tell me? Right. (laughs) And likewise that, you know, those, those folks come back to me and say, "I, I feel like I should understand X, Y, or Z about our product offering. I don't, can you just tell me? Right. And I think that intentionality in moving into any new area, but also in trying to cross that bridge between technology and, and business and management within a company or within the company that, you know, you're founding. Like often I know a lot of founders I talk to have a, a board of advisors, so to say, right. That they have that totally transparent relationship from, Hey, I sense I have a blind spot or a knowledge gap over there. Can you just, you know, tell me how this goes. Right. And I think that that openness and that learning process, you know, really helps overcome any language gaps pretty quickly. Yeah, I found the openness was something that I I started to do early on. And then I noticed like I wasn't doing it intentionally. And then I, I noticed that it was a reason that I was getting to the result faster. And then I saw other people who weren't doing it. And what I came to realize 
from that experience was if there's enough urgency and there's enough focus on the outcome and the goal you're trying to achieve, the worrying about is this a silly question or the worrying and or anxiety sort of fades away because it's just like, what's the quickest path? How do we just get there? Let's spend the resources we need. Let's ask the questions we need. Let's keep everything open. And that tends to work really well. And then the art is, you know, surrounding yourself with those people. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I love that. I love what you're saying about, you know, if, if, if the goal is the goal and, and everyone's agreed on what the focus is, it just kind of helps everyone set their egos aside. You know, I heard um, a speaker at, at a conference a couple of years ago say that they felt their job was to remove the ego opinion and emotion in, in decisions that they were overseeing, right? They called it the EEO but, you know, to, to, to remove, you know, set aside the ego, set aside the opinion, set aside the emotions and, you know, just kind of have a conversation on the facts. What do we know? What do we need to learn? You know, and how do we get to end a job most quickly? It's such an amazing description of, of great teaming. Yeah, I knew you'd be a great person when I read your background and I saw how far you've gotten. I'm like, yeah, she's going to have a lot of really good ideas. I'm curious to know, you know, to get to where you've gotten professionally, it takes an enormous amount of focus. It takes an enormous amount of discipline. Where did you pick that up in your life? Did your parents have it? Did you go through some like difficult moments? How did you acquire that discipline? I think it's probably genetic. <laughs> I can't take yeah. it. I can't take too much personal credit for it. But I mean, I was I was really focused in school because I I love learning. If you ask me when I was a kid what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be a teacher. You know, when you when you want to teach, you want to know, you want to grow. You know, so that you have something to share. And so I think I was very focused from a pretty early age on school and achieving and 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 learning in school and you know, that translated, you know, into then, you know, pursuing graduate studies. And I think that, that also, you know, one of the things that's helped me stay focused is mentors that I had pretty early in my career, um, who really helped me fine tune what it was in an understanding of what, what I was good at or the value that I brought to particular projects. Right. And that often was in a translation kind of function. If, if you've heard just five, 10 minutes ago, I talked about, you know, the language gap, right? And figuring out how to get through the language gap to understand business discussions if you're coming at it as a technologist. But if I hadn't studied engineering, I would have loved to study linguistics, right? I've, I've been someone who always wants to understand what's being said. What are we, you know, actually talking about? And so, you know, kind of helping understand, helping me understand early in my career, I had multiple mentors that were really influential and really helping me focus, right? And you've got to kind of figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And eventually, as you move into management, that means what are you going to do versus what are you going to ask other people to do? And having that, you know, awareness of where you need to get better at things and grow. So you're going to take it on for that reason, Versus, you know, where your time personally is best spent, right? So, you know, I will often personally get involved, you know, again, whether or not it's with clients or internal teams in situations where, you know, folks are kind of at loggerheads and, you know, not understanding each other, right? And I find that, you know, 30 minutes and I can often help untangle, okay, wait, you know, what's everyone saying, right? Um, back to, you know, the, the personalities within clients, you know, why is the, the information security team not going to approve what the CTO is doing, you know, vice versa? Why is the CTO not able to move quickly enough? How could we help create a new structure? How could we use technologies to do that internally? Why do we have a debate going on about the best path forward? So sort of how I spend my time and where I spend my time with my teams 
I think has, has been really the product of amazing mentoring that I've gotten that has helped me kind of understand, you know, where my natural proclivities are and where to therefore, you know, the, the types of projects to jump into so that I'm going to be most successful in helping the team push through them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of business is talking to other people. Yeah. And I found that a lot of, as, as you mentioned, a lot of the miscommunications are two different people saying the same thing, but with different words. Yeah. And then, you know, being able to connect that up is is incredibly uh, valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the hard part of your job? You know, I think um, maybe what some people would point to as the hard part is, is one of the parts that I enjoy the most, which is sort of strategy, right? I've always really enjoyed technical strategy, which to me means how do we make strategic bets informed by business realities that are going to get us in the right position a couple of years down the road, right? And it's hard because nobody has a crystal ball, right? The last couple of years have thrown curveballs at so many of our clients, right? You know, companies that have had to, you know, worked, IBM worked with a company that had to stand up, you know, their, you know, country's equivalent to the payroll protection program. If you remember that in 2020, Uh you know, ensuring people got paychecks and, you know, could feed their families, they had weeks to do it, to create an entirely new thing they've never thought about doing. It's effectively a loan processing program, but different and very regulated and run by the, you know, run by or with the government, et cetera, right? And so, so many different organizations that we work with and, and, and internally as well in terms of how we operated, so many things had to change, right? You know, but when you have a robust strategy and a robust kind of roadmap and, and you have been working on the fundamental underlying things around elasticity and automation, all that other kind of stuff, you're ready to deal with that variability, right? So fortunately, from a cloud perspective, we were able to accommodate and help and, 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 and help with a lot of, you know, change. And then the question now is, as many folks are facing cybersecurity concerns, as many folks are trying to deal with, you know, ESG factors, right? So carbon footprint, carbon neutrality, zero, you know, footprint, all those kind of things, those commitments that companies are making, where does IT, where does cloud computing, you know, come into play? And how do we make sure that we have really robust answers to those things out over the next couple of years? And then quantum computing, right? Making quantum accessible through the cloud and and all that other kind of stuff, but then also quantum safe security and quantum safe algorithms so that, you know, your, your data never could be cracked by a quantum computer. Some of those things are, you know, really fun to talk about. The details of implementation are things that we really have to work through and make sure that we get them right because they're very long-term decisions. So that strategic aspect of, you know, looking out a couple of years, if we do a sequence of things, you know, in the right order and with good execution, then we'll get to a better place and help people be able to deal with the realities of the world, you know, even two, three, five, ten years out in the future. I really enjoy that aspect of my job, but I would say in answer to your question, it's it's always the toughest because who knows what's around the corner. And a lot of assumptions and such have, have changed in the last couple of years. Yeah, I got to talk about, I think a year or two ago to Robert Souter, who's an IBM fellow and he works on quantum computing. Yeah. He's got a book called like Dancing with Qubits. He was really, really smart. And he just let me like a kid in a candy shop, ask him all the questions in the world that I had about quantum computing. So yeah, 
Yeah. It's, it's such a fun topic. I mean, Bob and I have done, you know, some, some discussions like this, you know, and, and sort of talking about how does quantum and the way people use it relate to things that we know now, like, you know, how AI is computed using GPUs or other things like that. So, you know, how does quantum fit in as a future computing model and stuff? So there's, there's all kinds of topics all over that landscape. Yeah, I think shout out for IBM. Don't you have a playground, like a qubit type playground where people can actually go and run quantum code or quantum mathematics? Yeah, we do. And honestly, I'd encourage everyone to try it. Um, if you just you know search for IBM and quantum or something, you'll very quickly land on the right pages. But, you know, I have colleagues even whose, whose high school kids, you know, are, are using the, the kids kit and running things on the quantum computers and stuff like that. So it's super accessible, great developer experience, really, really well designed. You know, you can learn about quantum, you can do some quantum experiments. You really don't have to have read 10 quantum physics books, you know, to, to try it out. Um, there's a lot of, you know, examples and, and things like that, that you can build upon. Yeah, I personally ran through it after talking um, with Robert or Bob. I don't know. But uh, I just remember his name from the title. Like in my head, I see the title of the, the episode. Robert yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. I would rather be more formal than not because some right. people yeah, really... Yeah, we usually yeah. call him Bob. I think he's okay with that, but it's fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like a really relaxed, cool guy. I think we were talking, he was at his cabin and he was. we were just hanging out. I wanted two things. So the first is, it is a very cool interface because I went and explored it after and it walks you through. It truly is like a playground experience. So you can just mm -hmm. start with any experience level. You can start with it and have some fun. But the second thing I didn't want to gloss over too much was you were talking about strategy. And I want to know where is a good place to start learning about that? Any favorite authors or books? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of my favorite descriptions of how to do kind of strategic innovation. When the book came out, it didn't have the exact sort of graphic in it that the professor uh, had described when, when he was teaching it to us. But it goes roughly by saying that if you're wanting to do strategy, you can set ambitious goals for a team. But when you start, they're not going to know much about the topic because you're working on something that's going to take two, three years to develop. And this applies to a startup as well. He was talking specifically about innovation in large companies. But you're going to start with a sparse set of data, right? If you imagine, you know, a graph, an X, Y plot, you're here at the origin, you're wanting to go to the moon somewhere out there. But, you know, you only have a couple of dots that tell you how to fit a curve on that graph. And you have to have the right culture to say, we're going to address a strategic topic as a team. What do we all know? Going back to some of the things that we talked about in sort of being as egoless as possible in these kind of conversations that mix technology and, and business, what do we all know? And how do we stick a couple of points, data points, so to say, on the graph and decide as a team to take the leap of faith and set a strategy, set a curve through those dots? But how do we continue to come back together and openly discuss and debate? Oops, I found another data point. Oops, there's a cluster of data developing on the bottom side of the graph. Maybe we need to shift the curve, shift the technology, shift the direction we're going a little bit. And I just love that description. And it's not something that I use as a formal method with any of my teams or, or projects, but it's constantly in the back of my mind let's go ahead and make a leap. Like let's, let's, you know, encourage an investment. Let's look at a business case that's aggressive. Let's look three, four, five, 10 years out. 
and let's get going, right? Let's get a squad of people heading in a direction, building technology, doing something, but let's constantly check in because if we send that you know, project or that team or that technology off and we don't constantly check back on it and have, I guess I would say, the humility to adjust the strategy based on new things that are learned, we're probably not going to get to the moon. We're probably not going to hit the target. And so I, that for me is, is just sort of a powerful thought that is in the back of my mind you know, when working on future projects, let's get as much information, let's try to take decisions, but let's try to, you know, constantly go back and revisit and learn and refine and discuss those things and have the right team culture where that's then possible. Nice, nice. So a lot of experience and um, just a lot of figuring it out for getting good at strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's certainly things to be understood from a more consulting sense, you know, how, you know, McKinsey or BCG or, you know, companies like that, you know, put together certain, you know, methods and such. A lot of that tends to be, you know, sort of more at the intersection of the commercial opportunity for a technology or at the intersection yes. and, and helpful for using and building a business case. I think it's tough, you know, when you're in the position of being the technology leader on a topic it's tough to, you know, sort of make up a, a specific matrix or formula in my mind, other than really that iterative refinement, right? Take a leap toward a large goal and continue to iteratively refine it. And there's plenty of process and methodology that you can point to in terms of, you know, we often architect things first and then we do MVPs and, you know, you can, you can bring in agile and anything else that you want. Right. But I think fundamentally in, in my mind, when we're talking technical strategy, a lot of it is really being willing to take a decision early enough, but having the humility to come back and really address that and, and having a, the team feel open enough to, to question and bring in new information and such so that we all can adjust together. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of failures, but I found success in testing commercialization of an idea. So looking at ratios of cold outreach versus response to see how much I call it market pressure there is, like how much pressure is there? And then if you can relieve that pressure, you can have a revenue stream. And if there's nothing there, there's nothing there. So I used to start by building products by, you know, working with a company that had an issue and they said, okay, well, this is how much this issue cost me. And I, and then, you know, that would be a justification for building a tool. So that worked, you know, pretty well. But then when going out and, you know, sort of having a couple ideas of what you want to create or a general area where you want to solve a problem, I found this method of seeing how much sales pressure is there first because I was actually able on my last company to get people to pay me for the product before it existed because there was enough pressure there. Yeah, that's amazing. I, no, I, I love it. And I think that it goes to, to some of the things we were talking about just in the sense of like, not viewing technology or technical strategy as ever something done absent from the broader market conditions and, and business, right? Because, you know, early, early conversations even, and people were paying you, but in the process of doing that sale, you were getting feedback, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, that's the product, you know, product testing then. <laughs> and, and you then have your sponsor users and all these other aspects, right? That help with that iterative refinement that I was talking about. Oh, yeah. As a young entrepreneur, I was around other people and I saw them having success and I would look at their pitch deck and it looked like something done in paint on like Windows 95. And I'm like, how is that pitch deck landing you all these deals? It doesn't look good. You need a designer. Like it needs to look pretty and all this stuff. And then I found out, you know, as I, as I grew, 
like it's because they're solving the problem. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter a whole lot. The pitch deck can look like, as long as it conveys that it can solve the problem, then that's a start. And the bigger the problem, <laughs> the less pretty it needs to be. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when, when we're working with large enterprises, there's a lot of work that we try to do to understand, you know, what's in the mind of a CIO right now, what's in the mind of a CTO, what's in the mind of a CISO. You know, because to your point, it's the same thing with our enterprise products. We need to be addressing an actual problem that the market's having. You know, we need to be addressing concerns that people are dealing with, you know, right now from a cybersecurity perspective or from a regulatory perspective or um, from an industry-specific, you know, lens. You know, what's going on in healthcare? What are the major, you know, trends? What's happening in telco because of 5G, right? And so those felt needs often actually are generated by new technologies coming about, right? So needing to respond to how might 5G change my industry? How might immersive experiences, you know, or whatever it is, you know, that's that's come about as a new technology change where I need to modernize and shift and adapt my IT, right? And so those are often, you know, those, those disruptors from a technical perspective are also then the things where we can then provide, you know, solutions that address those really strong felt needs. Now, I am watching the time and I want to be respectful of the time, but I do have a last couple questions for you. We got to talk about Sovereign Cloud. We got to talk about strategy and some of your experience in your day-to-day. But you have been at IBM your entire career. Yeah. Yeah. How is that possible? What? Yeah, it's funny. I had an interview maybe six, six, nine months ago person said, you know, describe your career path. And I said, well, I, you know, first worked on things that were on computer chips, you know, caches and embedded DRAM, you know, on the computer chips, on these, you know, multi-billion transistor chips, right? And then I worked on memory technology and that turned into high bandwidth memory technology, you know, so how do you feed the processor with all the data? And then the most hungry thing that requires high bandwidth memory technology turns out to actually be AI because doing machine learning and deep learning it's just a lot of math. There's no way to get around the fact that it's a lot of math. So it sucks up a lot of memory bandwidth and you use GPUs. And that then turned into, well, you know, where's everyone doing their AI computing? Well, they're doing it in the cloud. So then I began working in cloud. And so the person's reaction was actually, and how many companies have you been at? And I said, just just one. And they said, all of those things in one company. You know, and that's that's really, you know, why I've had such a rich career at IBM is just the breadth of the company in terms of all the things that IBM does. We still today, even though I'm no longer in that area, we have people that design, you know, microprocessor chips that go into enterprise, you know, servers into the power systems and the IBM system Z. So we have people that, you know, work down literally on tuning the performance of transistors and building processors out of it and work on memory subsystems. We have people that develop technologies for AI and all those algorithms and and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, even outside and above the cloud in the stack, there's all kinds of people doing different software and middleware and transformation at that level. And then there's consulting and people that understand industry processes and how to transform, you know, your, your, your major industry functions and run payments better and you know, adapt telco environments for 5G or, you know, work with, you know, ExxonMobil on their, you know, rewards application for consumers, right? So the breadth of technology in this one company is is so wide that I've really been able to kind of have a new career in some sense um, every kind of two to three years. 
which has been really exciting for me. And there's, there's a story that I can kind of tell about the adjacency of each area, you know, that I've worked in, but it's been really great for me as someone that just loves learning, you know, to constantly kind of be able to expand and, and move into an adjacent area. Yeah, curious driven people seem to go pretty far. Like 500 plus interviews and that's what I can take away from it. <laughs> if you're curious <laughs> and you're willing to do the work, you can go super, super far. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I, I started out in IBM Research and, you know, our building in Yorktown Heights, New York has, you know, I think close to 2000 people, many of them PhDs. If you have a question about astrophysics, you can go and find an astrophysicist. If you have a question about weather, you can go and find someone that understands the physics, physics of weather modeling. There's the quantum scientists like, you know, Bob Suter that you were talking about. But then there's people that understand every aspect of, of computing and have invented, you know, in some cases, individuals that have invented hundreds of things and, you know, in their careers. So starting in that environment and seeing the breadth of people there and then, you know, moving into our actual, you know, product organization um, in IBM Cloud really, you know, gave me a good idea of how IBM sort of takes ideas and then, you know, turns it into actual products. And I, I just love that, you know, that intersection of the technology transfer and, and, and solving real world, you know, the ability to sit somewhere that has that depth of research. There are people I can call when we have customers that get stuck on something. Um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a physicist or a computer scientist or something else like that, that, you know, can bring their expertise to bear. So we have IBM Research, you know, as a as a resource pool, also for our clients and their problems. Um, we have them as a source of ideas and innovation and prototypes and POCs and MVPs and things like that. We absorb their technology into what we're doing, um, and so it's just this great synergy and opportunity to continue to continue to drive technology. Well, Hillary, we did it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.